Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss you're on team human conscious intervention in the machine we are taking back the controls not to restore order but to promote chaos Unpredictable human creativity is not the problem, but the solution. Join the party, find the others, throw off the yoke of surveillance and manipulation, and celebrate the quirky, anomalous behaviors and approaches that make real people so much more than robots, algorithms, or consumer profiles. You are not a number. You are a human being. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, astrophysicist and author of Losing the Nobel Prize, Brian Keating. For millennia, up until and beyond Einstein, people thought the universe was eternal. They didn't necessarily think it had an inflation and a Big Bang and a a multiverse. They didn't think of the things that we nowadays call modern cosmology. Brian will be helping us position humanity in the temporal landscape of the cosmos. Huh? That's right. I'm just as scared as you are. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So it's the 50th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke's science fiction epic, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And what the movie Space Odyssey was really about was what happens when the problems of humanity end up embedded in the code of a computer. The... I hope I'm not giving away a spoiler here, but there's a big computer in Space Odyssey named Hal, and it ultimately tries to kill the human beings under his care. And a lot of people see the movie without realizing why that is. Is it just that some AI goes crazy or just thinks it's smarter than people? No. The reason why Hal tries to kill those people is revealed very early in the movie where a lie is used to cover up what's actually happening on the moon and the reason for this mission in the first place. And Hal is aware. Hal has been told the truth, and he's been told that these astronauts have been lied to, which sets up a really strange dynamic in this artificial intelligence's logic centers to think, well, if I'm told the truth and they're told a lie, then they must be the inferior species. I don't need to disclose to them because that's not in my programming. It's not to treat them as the mission. I'm the mission. And it's really interesting because I feel like we're in the same place right now. I feel like when I was watching those Facebook hearings last week, I realize on the one hand, there were no bombshells 
that were explored. Nothing huge got revealed. But I think something huge did get revealed. And that's the utter cluelessness of everyone involved in both making Facebook and interrogating Facebook about what they're doing. And that is too dangerous a situation for us to allow to continue. Um, Let Hal be the lesson as to what happens when you entrust important human dynamics to artificial intelligences that we don't even understand. So the cluelessness at the Facebook hearings, it first made itself apparent when Senator Truck Grassley began reading questions, obviously prepared for him by his net-savvy staffers, but which he himself clearly did not understand. And as most of his colleagues would prove over the next several hours, it's hard to know what technology is doing if you have no idea how it works or what it's even for. One of the senators asked, well, can I take my data off Facebook and port it to Android? Huh? That means nothing. And you could see on Zuckerberg's face that he thought he had one over on them. But it's not as if this panel of clueless senators were facing some sort of evil genius. You know, for me, the more surprising thing about Zuckerberg's answers was not the complexity of his team's fascinating defense strategy, but his own lack of knowledge, not just about Facebook's technological capabilities, but about the history and dynamics of the Internet itself. The strategy was for him to act like the innocent, well-meaning Harvard dorm inventor who's just as surprised as any of us by the way his homespun platform has grown and who's now ready to grow up himself and make sure his digital behemoth becomes a force for good. But his ignorance of the net's bias towards surveillance, if it's not feigned, is glaring reason to doubt he can rise to the occasion of self-regulation. It was when uh, Maria Cantwell, the most digitally literate person in the room, when she asked Zuckerberg if he knew what total information awareness was, he said he didn't. He didn't know what Palantir was. He doesn't even know about the original effort by John Poindexter and others to sweep the entire data universe to do predictive modeling of people and weed out potential terrorists after 9-11. Right. He doesn't know because that was back in 2003 when Zook was only, what, 18, 19, and still living in that dorm room stealing his classmates' ideas. You know, ignorance may not be a defense, but it means the problem we're facing isn't malice. It's just a lack of knowledge and context. Mark Zuckerberg is less the reason the internet went bad than he is the product of an internet gone bad, running on the wrong business model. But since he didn't get to the internet until so recently, he doesn't know any different from the VC-based internet that we're on today. So, for instance, everybody seems to agree that the fake news and Russian misinformation are bad. The only question seems to be how to get rid of it. So the senators suggest regulation, but this can backfire, particularly since Facebook is the only player at the table and will push for regulation that cements its position. Zuckerberg's always depended on users to identify and flag bad content, but this plainly isn't working. So he offers instead that the company's now working on artificial intelligence that can distinguish between real and fake posts. With enough machine learning, he says, this should just fix things. So just think for a minute what we're saying. The problems created by a website built by a college kid, which subsequently grew out of his control because of an internet he didn't understand, will be policed by algorithms whose ramifications he'll understand even less. And all of this techno-solutionism seems to satisfy the senators who don't even understand the technology that's causing all the trouble. Ignorance is just the rule of the road at this point. As if to relieve himself of any culpability for the ongoing compromise of our privacy online, he kept repeating that Facebook users have the choice of what they share. They can opt in or opt out of whatever they choose. But that would require users understand their options a whole lot better than most of us do. The fact that they don't know what they're signing on for 
is the core of Facebook's business plan. No, Facebook's problems can't be solved by more algorithms or even better regulation. This is because Facebook's underlying business model is to extract value from users' data. Yes, it's easier for poor people to pay for net access with their data and their psyches rather than cash. But as we're learning, the cost of this bargain is much, much higher than the price. Given the power of digital technology to promote the interests of the corporations it serves, asking the company to work against its core programming seems futile. It's like asking Hal to go against the lies that were programmed into him. The only real answer, the seemingly unthinkable one, is to build an alternative network that has a different funding model, be it a public utility, a sustainable nonprofit, a platform cooperative, or a pay service. And if you doubt the reality of such a proposal, consider Zuckerberg's one seemingly vulnerable moment of the hearings when Lindsey Graham asked if Facebook was a monopoly. Zuckerberg replied, it certainly doesn't feel like that to me. Let's take him at his word and build an alternative that promotes its users' interests instead of everybody else's. I'm Richard Heinberg, and I'm on Team Human. Hi, I'm Alex Juhas, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ghislaine Boddington, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jeremy Lentz, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Nikki Silvestri, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human, our guest today, astrophysicist and author of Losing the Nobel Prize, Brian Keating. So... I'm trying to figure out where we came from and what we're here for. And an astrophysicist has a handle on some of this. So I uh, uh, recently, I mean, we both have the same literary agent. And I picked up a book over there at, at the Brockman Agency by Julian Barber called like The End of Time. And this book kind of said that, look, don't worry about the Big Bang. Never happened. Time's not linear. It's Euclid and all these people. They all got to put a piece of graph paper behind reality in order to be able to measure things. But if you take away the piece of graph paper, it's all relative and it's all just everything is everything. So stop worrying about time. It just all happened or is happening and is going to happen, but it's not there. But then I read your stuff and it's like, oh, no, we've can see this stuff. They can see this background radiation from the Big Big Bang happen. So the Big Bang happened for real? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if I didn't, you know, I think, uh, who was it that said, uh, one of the Nobel winning economists who said, you know, it's, it's hard to make a man, you know, not believe in something on, on which his job depends on him believing in its existence. <laughs> uh, but I believe in it not, not merely because of that fact that I'm a card carrying and paid union member of the Union of Concerned Cosmologists. But actually, there's extreme um, amounts of evidence that point to it. Of course, there's no eyewitnesses to it. There was no one with a with an iPhone, you know, thirteen point eight two billion years ago, capturing this fireball of an explosion that, when the universe propelled into existence, some say by a omniscient, omnipotent creator, and some say by the pure laws of quantum mechanics, impelling it out of a sea of nothingness. But what's so intriguing to me is that, and there's a certain amount of hubris associated with it. Every generation of cosmologists likes to think that they're the first generation to have the tools necessary to really unravel what it was like to be there in the beginning, quote unquote, as the famous book begins. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, what's interesting to me is that uh, that that's okay because because it's part of the human urge and impulse to want to to want to feel that you live in a special time in a special place in a special moment when only you can comprehend a special cognitive and have the special cognitive abilities to comprehend the universe, but we do have some pretty fantastic technology, and there are certain limits beyond which um, no future t civilization will be able to get beyond, and let me explain that. So the, the most 
abundant in a sense and the most conclusive evidence of the Big Bang's reality is this all-pervasive heat, this glowing heat, uh, which comes to us in all directions, which was discovered, as with many great cosmological discoveries in, in northern New Jersey in 1965, as sort of an annoying hiss found in a, in a special type of communication satellite antenna that was looking for one of the first internet satellites that were available at the time in 19, early 1960s. And this hiss was all-pervasive. They could not get rid of it. It didn't matter when they looked, where they looked. It was always there. It was a background radiation. And now we call it the cosmic background radiation or cosmic microwave. So it was just, they just thought this is some kind of noise we got. Serendipitous, just... right. Right. First they thought it was pigeons that had been nesting inside the, the horn of this <laughs> giant antenna in Holmdale, New Jersey. It's still there. It's a historic landmark in the United States Register. And this uh, this this antenna, you know, was also a nesting ground for these homing pigeons or pigeons. And even after they shooed them away to, and drove them down the New Jersey Turnpike, the longest cash register in the world, and they drove it down to Philadelphia, <laughs> the birds came back. And of course they did because they're homing pigeons right. after all. Right? <laughs> uh, so they had to, you know, re- make a requisition to the to the Bell Labs uh, staff for a shotgun shell and a gun, and then they put these poor birds to death. Oh my and, gosh! Uh, all in the name of Penzias yeah. <laughs> recounts yeah. it by saying, you know, the birds left with a little bang, but it allowed us to observe the big yeah. bang. And in that sense, this heat, you know, actually it's, it's, it's actually surprising in some sense that it wasn't discovered earlier because if you go out into space, deep space, far from the sun, far from any planet, far from any galaxy, and you have a little box, you know, the size of your thumb on each side, you'll have inside of there about a thousand photons from the big bang's origin, from this heat uh, birth of the universe. So these are all, and it's the most abundant source of light in the universe is the birth of the universe. Right. But this stuff, yeah, we know. I mean, when you close your eyes, especially if you're a little high or something, you close your eyes and you <laughs> see these colors and things and whatever, and then you find out, oh no, you're just looking at your own nervous system. You're mm-hmm. looking at your own back of your eyeballs or something. Right. This stuff isn't humanity looking at the back of its own eyeball, right? This is actual practical, no, we know this, rational, right. as re- as it's real as subjective. anything we it's know. It's not You're right, you're right. It's not subjective in any sense. It's a completely objective fact that you can go out and take a census of these particles of light and they each come with a slight you know, tag, essentially a barcode that says, I came from the formation of the elements, right. which itself occurred about one second after the Big Bang. But we cosmologists are very greedy. We want to go back not to one second after the Big Bang, not one millisecond after the Big Bang, not one microsecond. We want to go back to the Big Bang. I mean, if you're going to go that far. Yeah, but I want to go back. (laughs) This is the problem, though. When Mm -hmm. I talked to my daughter about the Big Bang, and Mm -hmm. this is when she was still six or seven, she was like, yeah, okay, but what about before that? Mm -hmm. Which is where we go. Yeah. And I think that is the most interesting question that I think could, could ever be answered, you know, is what happened 15 minutes before the Big Bang? And it's not a simple question. Steve Stephen Hawking, uh, the late Stephen Hawking now, he passed away on the day we're recording this. He uh, once said that it's nonsensical to talk about uh, what what happened before the beginning of time because that was the beginning of time. So the notion of time itself doesn't make sense. And it, he's called it as nonsensical as asking what is lies north of the North Pole. And then, you know, one of my kids showed me a picture and, you know, Santa Claus over the North Pole. So that, that actually right. does have a good answer. Yeah, right? but that answer to most of our brains then right. says, oh, but that's because there is no north because it's all round. Right. It's a sphere. Exactly. So the, I'm fine with there being no before the Big Bang as long as we don't think of the Big Bang as historical. Right. So if the Big Bang was a single origin event, then it's expected to leave a background not uh, unlike or not dissimilar to this cosmic background of photons, except instead of being in the shape of photons or in the form of photons, particles of light, it would actually leave behind a signature which itself is a background of gravitational particles called gravitons or gravitational waves. If we detect this signature, it would be the earliest that humankind or technology could ever go back because nothing is weaker than gravity, but gravity's weakness is its strength because gravity can go right through us, it can go right through the Earth, it can go right through the Big Bang itself. So if there was another universe that existed before our universe that whose death our existence owes itself to, in other words, if there was a big crunch before the Big Bang, which is completely plausible and completely within the realms of the, of the greatest minds of cosmology today that are actively 
working on this question of whether or not the universe that we observe now emerged from the bouncing, fiery death of a previous universe. Right. And that is an open question. It was also an open question when the heat that we observe today for my day job or my night job, when that was discovered in 1965, that was actually thought to be the most uh, a cogent explanation for the origin of this heat was that there was a previous universe that collapsed on itself and then our universe sprouted out from that. Right. And if you want to really play the game, though, then it can make everything work because then you go back, you know, you zoom into the Big Bang and you look then through before the Big Bang and maybe you'll see the end of our universe. Correct. Right. And then it's all just, oh, good, I get it. So then there is no time again. Right. So Sir Roger Penrose, who's, uh, you know, a friend of mine and, and has, has... Which you see him as on kind of the other side, though. Yes, he has he has a contrarian kind of aspect to, to, to this, but he's also done, you know... But my kind of people, we, <laughs> you're like, we're all into you're Penrose and Bohm right. and, mm-hmm. and all, you right. know, it's, all, it's the more sort of psychedelic right. vision right. of things. Exactly, yeah. So, so uh, one, of, one of his ideas is that you have this sort of infinitely extensible cosmogony where the, the universe is generating itself time after time and cycles of time that he calls aeons or eons. Uh, and these are just incomprehensible long periods of time, but they owe themselves to the same very well understood bedrock, you know, standard or, you know, card carrying, you know, cos- not, not out there psychedelic land. You know, day to day or practicing cosmologists believe in some of the notions. For example, a black hole is something that sucks in every piece of matter, anything that un- you know misfort- has the misfortune of coming near it. Well, the opposite of a black hole is like a white hole, where everything is sort of coming out or emerging from it. And in some sense, the singularity that is, many cosmologists believe was at the origin of time, the Big Bang, and that caused it, has a lot of mathematical, physical, relativistic similarities to a, a white hole. So, so to the opposite of this black hole was the singularity that created our universe or that our universe began with. Uh, and this is work Stephen Hawking did with yeah. Penrose. You know, Penrose is very much uh, uh, still in favor of this idea. And what's interesting is that for the first time, there are crisp tests that in principle can falsify their models, but you cannot falsify a model that makes a prediction that can accept the, the, the possibility that it itself may be wrong. In other words, it doesn't make a crisp prediction that, you know, my model is correct if there are purple unicorns under yeah. the sea ice at the North Pole. So I can go to the North Pole and check under the sea ice, see if it's there. Right. But I can falsify that model. The virtue of Penrose's model and other models that rely on a cyclical cycle of time or that they can be disproven, which is right. not the way that you think about science. Oh, my, my theory is better than yours because I can disprove my – well, right. okay, you know, I can disprove a lot of things, right? You know, I'm, not, I'm not that good at proving things. It doesn't mean that you can't prove it. It means that you, can't, you can can't disprove di- it. Right. So I think that, that, that forms a very attractive philosophical notion for a practicing experimental cosmologist like myself. If I fail to observe the signature of this or if I do observe a, car, a, a, a competing theory's prediction, if I observe these ways of gravity, his theory is dead. The ideas may be rock solid, but his theory on the origin of cyclic time will be dead. And that is interesting because for millennia up until and beyond Einstein, you know, people thought the universe was eternal. They didn't necessarily think it had an inflation and a big bang and a a multiverse. They didn't think of the things that we nowadays call modern cosmology. But, you know, from Aristotle on forward, basically up until Einstein and even beyond Einstein's creation of the theory of general relativity, uh, until he saw the data, of Hubble that really falsified his notion of an eternal cosmos. He remained un, 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 you know, waveable. And I think when he saw that, and it's the hallmark of a good scientist, that when data comes in that disagrees with his or her hypothesis, even if it's their pet thing, even if it's the thing on which their job depends, that they'll reject it. And I think he was he was a wise and, and competent and, and, and really had the integrity as a scientist that you know, I aspire to. I try to keep my students to that standard as well. But then how, do you guys... I'm interested in the interfaith dialogue mm-hmm. between physicists of different stripes. Yeah. So if you're hanging out with Penrose, you're having a beer or whatever, and you know this guy sitting next to you believes what to your physics. Right. The standard, you know, 99.7% of. Freaking crazy. <laughs> you're freaking not. Now, is it, what does that feel like? Is it just like, oh, he thinks Superman's better than Batman, and I know Batman's better than Superman? You know, Yankee fan, Mets fan, or is it more like... No, I think it's the most important question that you could possibly answer. And I don't take people like him lightly because, you know... But it's... it doesn't make you hate him, though. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, I have great respect for him. I mean, I was you know honored that he endorsed my book and, and, and so forth. And also that, that his modern-day incarnation of him is a professor, Paul Steinhardt, who we've also had on our podcast at UCSD, 
that that he is sort of championing the quantum extension of Sir Roger Penrose's classical physics. So he was dealing with you know how things behave on a smooth scale. Now they're interested in well, what happens as you go through this bounce? Because if you think about it, if if their model is correct, it will it will erase somehow the history of the previous universe cycle that preceded our universe. And in that sense, it will end in a heat death. It'll end with very high entropy, as 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 you know. So when something emerges from very high entropy, there's sort of very little room at the top. Like there's no, there's not as much room for expansion to go to even higher levels of entropy that we believe. And actually, we think, based on what we observe, you know, in the in the local universe, that the universe started off in a very low entropy state where it was relatively organized and 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 had relatively little amounts of randomness to it. So in their model, they predict sort of diametrically opposed. They have to solve that problem. So I'll hold him to the same standard. Right. I'll hold you, you know, Sir Roger or, or, or Paul Steinhardt. I'll say, look, you have to make a, a prediction that is going to answer your critics and answer people that are willingly going to go out and look for these signatures and spend millions of dollars, in my case, building experiments, taking them to the far reaches of the planet and into space. And, and, and to do that, you need to really address these questions and the lacunae in your model, if there are any. And, and to date, they've done that. They've had some, you know, some kind of... Um, I would say that that not even the greats of of cosmology and science are immune from what I consider to be fairly pernicious a malady that many scientists suffer from and 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 have since the time of Galileo, which is confirmation bias. That they have you know an elegance. And Paul Dirac used to talk about this. He used to say it's more important that my equations are beautiful than that they're right. <laughs> and and I think that 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 belies a lot of the kind of love of beauty and elegance in mathematics and the looking right. for symmetry. But and, the, and the the problem with confirmation bias, or the good thing about it, though, is. What if confirmation bias is actually creative? Hmm. In other words, the 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 sort of the I, although it's on one level a bastardization of of the, the sort of quantum paradoxes and the and Schrodinger's cat. If the human mind, if what we do is resolve a myriad of quantum states through observation to a, a reality, to a, a, a reality, then maybe confirmation bias. Is the reality creation? Do you know <laughs> right. what I mean? It's sort yeah. of, it's the Disney approach. It's what we were talking about before. You know, in that movie about Futureland, that they're saying, "Oh, you know, whatever we feel is what's going to be there." Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So the sort of wish fulfillment, right? So I mean, I, I always think it's interesting. You know, when you when you look back and and you read something like like the Torah, the Old Testament, and it says there's an admonition in there with the Jewish uh, people will call the Shema. So mm-hmm. the Shema talks about how you should be be wary for yourself, for your lives, that you don't stray after your eyes and your heart. And instead, you shema, you listen, and you hear. You know, rather than looking for something that will potentially confirm a notion that you may have had before. I think that's a pernicious form of confirmation bias. But I think you're right. Just as with this unfalsifiable hypothesis, sometimes you know, astrology served a purpose, right? It wasn't falsifiable because it was so flexible. I could say, you know, you're a Virgo and you're going to have a great day tomorrow. Okay, so <laughs> you know, and by my record, you had a great day, even if you got hit by a safe, right? But um, but it forced astronomers to sort of hone their skills, hone their tools, hone their data. And of course, astronomy owes its heritage to astrology in a large part. And I think even if these other models, even if the the dominant paradigm today is the Big Bang model, is that there was a single origin, that origin it became uh, forth out of the inflationary, this this all-pervasive energy source uh, that we have no corresponding uh, notion of today that doesn't exist today called uh, the inflaton, that these things existed and that they also spawn an infinity of possible other universes called them. That paradigm, you know, is, is in some sense unfalsifiable because if right. there are an infinite number of universes, universe, anything goes. And you can't falsify a universe which by definition is inaccessible and might exist in 86 dimensions and we can't access that. Right. So in some sense you're saying it almost doesn't matter what people believe as long as they're getting good data for future generations to figure stuff out. Exactly. There's no point in ad hominem. I mean that and it does exist. I mean there there are conflicts within science every bit as as intense and 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 raging as you know the Israel Palestine conflict, you know. But but I think you know those don't serve much purpose. I think there are people that have when that occurs, that is the confirmation bias that I want to see my theory proven right. And I think that there's another very subversive force at work that, you know, maybe we'll talk about. But but I think that in, in that case, you know, I think there that that's when you've gone beyond the science. And, right. and you're actually talking, you know, you're really talking around each other rather than thinking about, I want to know the answer to this question. This is what I want to know. This is what I want to devote my life to. I think it's the biggest question of all, at least in, that is potentially accessible to scientific investigation. Now, but you as a, a, a kid, 
you had some nerd qualities, I Correct. guess. Correct. Oh, yes. Very right? many. Yeah. So you did, you, you a got. A few non-nerd qualities. Yeah, but you got <laughs> way past all the angular momentum and friction and stuff that mm-hmm. we did mm-hmm. and started. I mean, you went past AP physics. Uh, right? I did, yeah. You did. Into the real stuff. Mm-hmm. And did you, the, the part that's strange to me is, okay, here's this, here's a physics nerd that you're learning about all this stuff and doing the equations I can't do and modeling things in computers. Then you have to go to Antarctica <laughs> yeah. for months <laughs> yeah. in the cold and on boats and whatever you have to do to get down there. And to, I mean, this is not what we – I consider myself a nerd too. This is not what we do. <laughs> right. We stay in nice, comfortable, air-conditioned spaces and look at our computers and watch science fiction shows. <laughs> That's so right. So what compelled you to go down there and do this live in person with your physical form and what did you get? By putting your human body, how did putting your human body through months in Antarctica, looking at the sun or whatever, right, right. Mm-hmm. how yeah. did that change your your experience of what you do? Interesting, uh, appropriate for your the first part of that that statement was you know one of my friends is a is a Navy you know carrier pilot and he would go out and you know live on an aircraft carrier for a year and he'd land on them and it was just like you know he got into it after Top Gun and just and he said you know we we have a saying in the in the Navy because I said like well, I thought that would be pretty cool too but I could it's like yeah everyone wants to be a cowboy but not everyone wants to ride the range and basically you know i realized for me to build my telescope to go after my dream of unraveling the birth of the universe potentially i had to ride the range and instead of being on a flat blue you know waving ocean it was on a frozen ocean of snow at the bottom of the world literally in the south pole antarctica the reason why you know being that the uh, south pole offers some of the best observing conditions for the type of astronomy that we need to do to see these precious few photons from the early universe. And you build this experiment to look for a photon that was born 13.82 million, billion years ago. So 13 billion, 820 million years ago, give or take a couple of days, you know, on a Thursday, that, that photon set off on its course to end its life in my telescope. And I don't want it to be absorbed in an air molecule. Um, and so most of these telescopes need to be built in very dry places. So water is a very effective absorber of microwave energy, which is why how your microwave oven works at home, assuming you use one. Um, but microwaves are very, very easily absorbed by water molecules. And so you want to go to a place that's very dry. So a lot of people say, well, why don't you just go into space? And I say, why don't you give me a billion dollars? Because it's a lot more expensive to build a satellite and to get above all the atmospheric uh, water vapor that there is and and avoid this, this systematic contaminant altogether. But it's 100 times more expensive than being on the ground. So we built this experiment, which was every bit as powerful. In some cases, you can build a more powerful experiment on the surface of the Earth because you don't have to loft this huge mass up right. into space. And you you can't launch a ginormous telescope into space anyways. So we we decided that there's basically two places on Earth in which we could do from which we could do this experiment. One was the South Pole Antarctica, which offered a lot of benefits potentially uh, compared to the other site, which is where I operate my main observatory nowadays, which is the high Atacama Desert in northern Chile, where you're above about 18,000 feet, uh, above about half the atmospheric air pressure that you feel at sea level. Um, so it's another otherworldly location. Again, we're always going to get above the atmospheric water vapor. And whatever way you can do that and, and do it in, in a poor scientist way that avoids a satellite, you're going to find and utilize those tools. So, so then when you're going to go to Antarctica, you go to Airbnb, you mm-hmm, find a place, right. you go on Expedia, yep, book a flight, get, close get it, your uh, miles yep, down go there, to Target, yeah, trust yeah. a traveler number, <laughs> yeah, and you're done. Exactly. Yeah, would that it were so easy. No, we start off uh, start off ordinarily enough. We flew you know, from LAX, from San Diego to LAX, and then from LAX, you fly two flights to New Zealand, South Island. You end up in a in a, in a town known for its you know very uh, high density of Orthodox Jews. It's called Christchurch, uh-huh. New Zealand, and it's a lovely city. It's actually modeled on Avon and Stratford on Avon. There's a, even a river called the Avon that you can go punting down on little skiffs and have a gondolier push you around uh, as you idle away the days. And that uh, and that from there is where the uh, heroic explorers, the the Amundsens, the Scots, that first reached the South Pole in 1911 and 1912. They left from and they took boats to get there. We actually go on uh, nowadays we fly on the New Zealand Air Force, uh, either the New Zealand Air Force C-130, which is a huge cargo plane meant to you know drop parachutists out you know to go conduct uh, some deadly business, or uh, or the U.S. If you're lucky, you go out and you find a jet that's owned by the U.S. Air Force. And I always say I always feel better when I see the U.S. Air Force, not only because you know it's flown by the New York Air National Guard, which I'm a native New Yorker. If you couldn't tell, uh, but uh, <laughs> but also because um, you know on the back of 
of almost military aircraft has has a picture, an insignia of their national air force. So on our planes, the U.S. planes, I say, uh, we have an eagle, you know, very you know, very terrifying looking eagle claws, and and on the back of the New Zealand aircraft is a, is a kiwi bird, you know, a flightless bird Aww. being you know the the kind of you know ideal Sweet. representative for a for a neutral country like mm-hmm. New Zealand. So when you get there, yeah, then you fly on a military plane the whole way till you get to the South Pole. You make two flights. If the weather's bad as it was for me the first time I went down in 2006, then you get turned around, but you're turned around past the midway point. So what they do is they fly you, and the trip takes about 11 hours total. What they'll do is they'll fly about six hours into the flight. They'll check the weather. If it's too bad on the coast of Antarctica, where the U.S. has one of its three bases in McMurdo Station, they'll turn around. But they don't have enough gas to get back to where you took off in Christchurch. So they land in the southernmost tip called Dunedin. Then you have another flight. And this all takes place, you know, five in the morning, which for an astronomer is pretty early. Uh, and then uh, and then I made it the second time. And then that was that was quite good. And then you get on a ski plane, uh, another C-130, and you're flown to the South Pole. And you're paying for all this to various. Zero nothing. You pay nothing. So it's all paid for by you, the United States taxpayer. So I thank you very much. And why did we we pay you? How did we know to pay you? So what's interesting is that the United States government only has the dominion over the South Pole and over the bases that does have in Antarctica because it's conducting scientific research. Uh, Antarctica uh, forbids commercial business. There's no military. It's like the old internet. It is, right. (laughs) So it's all for free, right? There's all Antarctic neutrality. But there's a building down there already. There is, yeah. There are many buildings. Yeah, so there's... at the very uh, you know southern tip of the world's axis on which the Earth spins is the South Pole has a research station named the Amundsen Scott Research South Pole Research Station, and there is conducted some of the most uh, cutting edge research into not only the origin of the universe that I study, but into the properties of these ghostly particles called neutrinos, which are penetrating trillions of us, penetrate uh, us each day. Uh, another type of science that they do then there is geophysics and atmospheric physics, and they discovered the ozone hole over Antarctica from the South Pole. So there's also sorts of uh, climate change research that, that takes place, geoscience, uh, seismology. There's no flora or fauna there. It's just simply too cold. Um, but but if not, you know, but for the fact that we have this base at the South Pole, if we were to leave about uh, tw- 10 years ago, the Russians planted a flag, you may remember, under a sub- on a submarine under the North Pole right. uh, sea ice. And they claim dominion over the, the North Pole. So we only own the, you know, if we left in a minute, you know, the Chinese or the Russians, you know, would collude and they'd go down there and take it from us. So you go down there. Yep. And you had permission, obviously. Yeah. You call the National ahead, Science Foundation. And right? they mm-hmm. say, like, give them these rooms. Correct. You had your telescope in little pieces in your bags mm-hmm. or whatever. <laughs> it was on the C-130 cargo plane, right? So everything has to fit through a 10-foot wide cargo bay door of a C-130 to get right. from America to, you know. To get and then the... you put the telescope outside? No. So it was actually built inside of a building that uh, when, when we designed it, it was very important to me that the person who's going to live there for the whole year, uh, that he or she could maintain, you know, could be dressed the way we are in San Diego basically short sleeves and shorts if they wanted to inside. If you were to go outside in the coldest day of the year, it's 100 below zero Fahrenheit. So actually, you can do amazing things there. The South Pole is a fantastic kitchen. They have a greenhouse. They have a half-court basketball court, but they also have a sauna. So one of their favorite traditions is when the mercury hits uh, 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, they go in the sauna, heat it up to 200 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, you know, kind of get all steamed up, and then they go outside naked. You have to be naked because if you have any clothes on you, you're going to get frostbite in the frostbitten places that you don't want to get frostbitten in. So, uh, so that's one of the luxuries that, that we have down Did there. Did you do it? Uh, I was not there in the winter, uh, thank God. No, my wife would kill me. Uh, it would be a good way to, place to get away and catch up on my reading of, of you know, one of your 20 books. But, but uh, no, I've never spent the winter there. I've only been there in the summer. So most of the you know, faculty, kind of professor types, were such wimps we can't really you know, tough it out for more than a couple of weeks there. So each time I was there, it was under a month. Oh, really? The total oh, travel time. Okay. Yes. My graduate students, you know, they earn their stripes spending many, many months there, really? three or four months. So I have one. Did one they go sp- mad? Um, no, they actually have a, a, a whole bunch of protocols that they take to make sure psychological testing, physical testing to make sure you're not going to go mad. Uh, some of the questions on the exam, you know, that are my favorites are, are things that, you know, made me question whether or not I was sane, you know, because it's like, you know, at night I hear the voices. I sometimes hear voices <laughs> at night, you know, or, you know, I would like to be a singer. Okay. And then another one was when I'm not around. 
people talk about how I always think they're talking about me. And I'm always wondering, like, what, what are they trying to divine from these questions on the psychological exam? So I say, you know, the, the reward of working there is that you make $75,000 and you do it all for working just one night. You know, because there's only one day and night at the South Pole every year. Uh. So the sun sets and it doesn't it doesn't go straight down as it does here in New York or wherever. It makes a slow circle and eventually it goes below the horizon. They don't know where. It's a complete mystery where exactly the sun is going to go down on the first day of fall, which you know is going to begin for them in uh, in March when uh, the first day of spring begins for us uh, next week, actually. So the sun is going to set and not be above the horizon for six months until September 21st or so. And that per, and so 40 human beings and, and the National Science Foundation has done studies to see how many women to men, what the ratio should be. There's all sorts of and they do they do all sorts of epidemiological studies People because date down there. They I date. Guess. There's been uh, there have been uh, marriages there. There have been no births there. Thank goodness, because that would be a pretty uh, radical event to take place there. But there have been divorces that took place at the South Pole. <laughs> so uh, there's one person there who has a gun, and and sometimes people don't know who that is. Um, and then they, for the rest of us, they have you know tranquilizer. Well, you got to have a gun because of the Stephen King thing could happen. Yeah, exactly. You know? So they so actually yeah. one of their macabre traditions is on the on the when the station closes. And there's no, there are no more visitors coming in for six more months. The last plane leaves, and everyone gathers and watches The Shining. Uh, <laughs> and then the middle of, of, of winter down there, in the middle of, of, uh, of July or so, <clears throat> they, they, watch, um, they watch The Thing, which also takes place. Right. So, you know, you know, it's just you know, take your mind off your suffering. Uh, so it's, it's a very difficult environment. But, you know, there's actually a, a waiting list, an oversubscription of people that want to winter over at the South Pole. So if you're interested, you can look up um, wintering over at the South Pole. And, and, it's, and it's done by several subcontractors to the National Science Foundation. So as a person that committed to science and to the data, you're also – Although you were an altar boy, mm-hmm. you're, also, <laughs> you're also a practicing Jew. Correct. As a grown-up. Yes. Do you, do you see the, the beliefs of Judaism as compatible with, the, with, with your findings? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, as I always say, you know, the, the, the Torah, the Old Testament, if you will, begins not with, you know, say, uh, fluid dynamics or uh, electromagnetic wave propagation or any other branch of physics or really, you know, it doesn't begin with biology, really. It begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so I, I always thought that was interesting. I always say, though, that you know that the that the you should never interpret the Torah, the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament as a science book, right? Because there's actually there's a total of 35 verses that could you know rationally be considered to describe some aspect of cosmology or genesis of of some sort or another. And there's 35,000 total verses in the entire Bible. So you know what if you picked up a book and it said you know computational fluid dynamics on the cover, and then it was all about you know the Oliver North trial or, or whatever. You know it was about yeah. something completely irrelevant to the time. You'd say that's not a book about computational fluid dynamics. And right. I, I but think, you're not looking at Torah as, as historicity then. No, I I don't. Don't look at it uh, necessarily as historicity. I mean, it's it's it, to, to look at it and ignore the fact that it has things to teach. Whether you think it's purely a work of literature, um, you know, I, I always say, you know, and, and with all due respect to Stephen Hawking, you know, I never looked at a brief history of time, which is very influential on my career, as a as a manual for ethics and how to raise my my children, right? So, so I think there, as as uh, Stephen Jay Gould said, there are non overlapping magisteria that you can have separate but equal in some sense, and and. You know, my favorite thing way to describe it came from uh, a, a podcast I recorded with Freeman Dyson, and he said, "Well, why shouldn't you, you know, why shouldn't you investigate these these two subjects, cosmology and religion? Why do you stop investigating religion when you became a bar mitzvah? You know, when you're 13, for a lot of Jewish boys, although I was an altar boy, as you pointed out, uh, but when you, when Jewish boys turn 13, usually it's a graduation ceremony. It's like the end of you know, yeah. end of being in prison and learning in Hebrew school, right? So so you would never accept a proof." Of you know of say or some something in cosmology or mathematics from a thirteen year old, but you find it so easy to accept your thirteen year old knowledge and an understanding of something that is is deep, rich, evocative, and and extremely rational in many ways. And I think the the problem is when scientists make uh, turn the the you know religious scripture of any kind it could be the Quran as well. 
into a straw man and then they just burn down the straw man. You know, they, they make a caricature of it without really understanding. I mean, first, before you want to talk to me about it, you know, have you read Thomas Aquinas? Have you read Augustine? Have you read, I mean, the great works of Christian? I mean, they've done none of it. But right. it doesn't well, make a sort of the Richard Dawkins style exactly. of right. anti, anti-theology as some ancient superstition that's keeping us from, from seeing rationally the world around mm-hmm. us. And it's like, dude, <laughs> you're so, so you're, you're, not so fast. You're right. rejecting the entirety of the meaning of existence. Right. And it's not a proof to say I'm not I'm not by any means saying this is a proof that, you know, I mean, I don't I think you'd have to be an idiot if there were a proof of God, you know, that God's existence. It's not even They're about not, God, it's about meaning and right. values and and the the and morality and how you treat a fellow human being. I mean, show me where in my computational fluid mechanics book again, you know, it shows, you know, treat the stranger, treat the sojourner in your land as yourself. Love the like love them. And and where it says you know, one of the things that spoke most to me, as I, you know, describe a little bit in, in my book, you know, is I had a difficult relationship with my father growing up, and and yet I was commanded to not love him. I didn't have to love him, but I had to honor him. And how did that mean? How did that play out? Yeah. And for me, what was so interesting about that experience and trying to find a way to honor him, you know, was that of the Ten Commandments, there's only one that says, here's a reward for practicing. Uh, so I was like, I'm an experimental physicist, so I'm going to test the Torah. I'm going to prove it wrong. I'm going to falsify the Torah because it makes us And, you know, uh, uh, go through a description of, of how this took me on a quest to really see what is the meaning? What does it mean? And what is the value? And, and how did I increase the length of my days? By observing this this ethical behavior towards you know a person I had a complicated relationship ultimately did love very much but but still it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't as simple but there's no there's no right. analog in secular society and there's nothing that elevates a human being and I think that that's that's a wonderful part about it. aside from all the other practical benefits of community of of fellowship of sharing you know common goals and values uh, that I think are just practical and have been studied you know, phil- you know philanthropy I mean where does it say in this you know in my electrodynamics right. book where does it say to, that I should give away ten percent right. of my income but no, nowhere but, but science currently at least has a bad rap for devaluing. The human, absolutely, and in some ways, functionally, I'd have to agree that that structurally and functionally, the practice of science now is alien to humanism. Mm -hmm. And part of what I found valuable about about your book, how I lost the Nobel Prize, is losing the Nobel Prize, losing the Nobel Mm -hmm. Prize, Mm -hmm. um, is. I lost could be <laughs> that could be that. It's a could be a title. sequel. <laughs> um, but it it what you do is you you show how the the competitiveness of the scientific landscape um, and the the sort of the the quest for these sort of X prize giant single awards ends up uh, being responsible for the the values that are engendered by these discoveries That's right. and and not just the cutthroatness between scientists but but a a a science itself ends up divorced from human value correct right so if you look at it you know I always ask people like what was the name of your maternal you know uh, great great grandfather I mean you probably could ask or you know maybe yeah. figure it out but you know you Beyond a couple of generations, you have no contact, and a couple of generations after you, no one's going to remember you, right? I mean, that's just the yeah. normal course of human humankind. So, what did Alfred Nobel do? He left a will. He left what in in, in Hebrew is called a tzavah, an ethical will that you know that combined his practical material um, uh, gifts that he wanted to bestow upon people in in his life, but also on society. And then he also combined that with an ethical, heterodoxical component, which was how do I use this scientific discovery? To better mankind, and I think he was very clear in his in his will. And I asked myself, you know, what would happen if if you wrote down a will? You know, in Judaism, you probably know this. One of the most, um, you know, uh, pr- not not prestigious, but one of the most um, elevated things you can do for another human being is to escort their body when the, after they die. So it's and, and the reason for that is because there's no way that they can ever repay you for it. So you're doing coming completely selflessly for somebody else. Conversely. What's one of the worst things you could do? Somebody tells you what they want to do after they die, and you completely disobey it. And I started to look at it when I was asked to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize a few years ago. 
I, I start to look at, you know, what was the Nobel Committee doing and what was the effect was that having by violating the terms that Alfred had written out himself and in and, and his will and as his legacy for all, all time. And that was the only way. He had no children. He never married. So this was his legacy. And it's been a, a noble with an L.E. Uh, legacy indeed. But the question of, of, you know, how do people get remembered and how does science get remembered? And, and how is it that this, that this prize conceived of in the late 1800s, you know, inspires and, and creates such, you know, fraught, perilous competition as it does today within science? Because scientists are just like, you know, uh, Academy Award aspirants, right? So, I mean, there are a lot of people that get into acting and, and don't care about winning an Oscar or get into music and don't care about – but there's an awful lot that do want to yeah. win an Oscar, do want to win a Grammy, and do want to win, you know, Pulitzer Prize. And certainly it's true for science. Scientists are just like ordinary people, quote unquote. And so I think it's driven a form of co- competitiveness and, and it's taken away kind of the meritocracy that I once felt it did have. And so it's been interesting to explore the effects that it's had on science itself, but on scientists, the humans that conduct science, you know, because for now we don't have the AI bots, you know, doing the experiments in our labs yet. Yeah, there was, I told you earlier, there's a, you know, guy who lives down the block from me who's in his 90s who is one of the people the main guy responsible for discovering controller genes mm-hmm. and the other scientists in his lab basically stole the Nobel Prize from him. <laughs> right. He didn't get he didn't get nothing. And mm-hmm. why even do that? Right. Why? Because they have a limited number of people that you're that, that are allowed to win it in a yeah. certain time so you push out the weakest guy. Yeah. So I yeah I have an idea for uh, you know a future maybe you know fiction fictional novel where there's you know four guys that make a discovery and they know that only three of them are women you know can win it and so it's a murder mystery and they, right. they have to conspire who's going to be next the Nobel murders <laughs> the Nobel murders that's uh, that's the working title so my my feeling is you know was best exemplified by the fact that yes Alfred Nobel actually said that only one person could win it and he said it had to be done in the preceding year the discovery and it had to benefit all of mankind and I started to think when I was asked to not the, you know, what astrophysics discovery really benefited all of mankind. And, you know, there were rumors at the time of this discovery made by the LIGO experiment, which stands for the Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory, which detected this death embrace of two black holes spiraling together for millions of years, maybe 100 million years, and in 250 milliseconds annihilated each other and became one giant blob black hole, even bigger than the sum of the – or slightly smaller than the sum of the two individual black holes. What was so astonishing about that was that LIGO detected the signal of gravitational waves from this pair of black holes. They were over a billion light years away. And so it took a billion years for the signal traveling at the speed of light to enter their detectors located on Earth. And in the time between the, 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 the announcement of this discovery and the eventual Nobel Prize, one of the three founders of this experiment passed away. One of the other rules of the Nobel Prize is that uh, is that you must be living to receive the Nobel Prize. Although they've given it to two men in the past, and and it wouldn't stretch the imagination when you find out that they're both Swedish, you know, white guys in Sweden who were the two only people who intentionally awarded the Nobel Prize posthumously. So I started thinking about how cruel it was, you know, that this this event took place a billion years ago. The signals traveling to Earth that they have reached the detectors twelve days earlier. The guy who had invented it is his brainchild, one of the three founding fathers of this experiment. He would have shared the Nobel prize. Instead, not only did he not win it, but the kind of the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences wrote the announcement in a way to minimize his his performance, even though everyone acknowledged that if they had done it a year before, he would have won it. So I felt that that's that's inherently non-scientific. It's it's not meritocratic. And it and it has a way of establishing the way that science gets done that's very detrimental to, to the way science right, actually competitive gets competitive and people don't share their results. And only three people. I mean, this yeah. is not 19, 1896 anymore. This is not what Galileo would sit up or Newton stroking his beard working Alone. We do things as a team. That's we have, there were a thousand forty-eight exactly team yeah. human. hundred percent. We there were there were one thousand and forty-eight other scientists on that experiment that did not win the Nobel Prize. And they're always mentioned, you know, as a kind of the closing See, even credits. Time, man of the year. Every once in a while, they say, you know. Women, right? Or, and know, even children. even the even the Nobel Peace Prize, it was given this year to a collective of many people. Al right. Gore won it with a, another collection of 150 or, or more scientists. So, so, so the Nobel Prize says nowhere that it can only go to three people. 
and yet they've arbitrarily decided that. And I start to think, why do they do that? And this is where my conspiracy theory, you know, kind of hat kicks in. And it's that, you know, what their goal is in the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences, they're the most powerful monopoly on Earth, if you think about it. Because the Nobel Prize is the most prestigious award that humanity has to offer. I mean, you can win an Oscar, you can win yeah. an Olympic gold medal. And, and there, there's a lot of people like that. There's only a few 200 people in human history who have ever won the Nobel Prize in physics. So that's a pretty small, you know, collection. There's more people that have been into space, than that, right? So, right. So, so I wondered, you know, well, why is that? So I started to think, well, what are monopolies? What are monopolies really good at? And that's keeping out the competition and upholding their rules. And in their case, the rules are very obscure, very opaque, and they have a characteristic of non-transparency uh, to to the way that the prize is selected, which is historical. Um, but they, they, the small group of you know white Swedish guys are controlling the fate of scientific funding, of collaboration. You know, research has shown that once you win a Nobel Prize, collaborations dissolve and acrimony sets in. There's jealousy, uh, and I just think it's it's completely needless, and it takes away the creative bandwidth that scientists could better use to understand the deepest mysteries of the universe. Right, it becomes Joseph's coat. You know, mm -hmm. that's right. Colors. Jealousy, like, right? You don't mm -hmm. want that thing. <laughs> Believe me, keep it up. <laughs> So I want to I want to talk about two ways in which, and then I'll let you go. Two ways in which um, science uh, intersects with humanism or with the human project. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm really interested in that sort of that Venn overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. um, so one, and and Freeman Dyson comes to mind, is the climate change argument, mm -hmm. where we hear you know 99.9, you know 99.4 percent of scientists like ivory soap say. Climate change is real, and it's humans are are to blame. And someone like Freeman Dyson comes along and says, "Well, the science isn't really that good." And all of a sudden, everybody says, not everybody, but mm -hmm. everyone who doesn't want to pay the price of climate change or doesn't want to, you know, deal with the exhaust of their car says, "Look, even Freeman Dyson says that the science is shoddy, and it might be something else." Mm -hmm. um, is the science shoddy? Well, I always think it's interesting. You know, people talk and will ask me, you know, what do you think about global warming? You know, you're a, you're a physicist. OK, so it's not my specialty. It's not atmospheric chemistry. And, and actually, you're a science guy, you represent the whole thing. But that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> you know, people really say, oh, you're a scientist. What do you think about God? Yeah, it's exact yeah. same kind of dichotomy. So I, I would say the understanding, you know, it's almost an insult. So I have friends at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which did share the Nobel Prize in parts, many scientists there for in uh, 2006, I think it was, for, you know, their investigations and study in the inter, uh, interplanetary, whatever, program on uh, climate change. I should remember it. But what they do is really hard. I mean, the stuff that they do, you know, is, is at least as complicated as understanding, you know, how do you understand the mixing of the atmosphere and the water? How does water vapor, right. how do the clouds change? You know, after September 11th, they saw the temperatures on the earth went up. And one of my colleagues, Ramanathan, uh, uh, Professor Ramanathan, at the uh, Scrims Institution of Oceanography did studies on the properties of aerosols, which act like little mirrors. So after September 11th, you remember, they canceled all air travel. So that really shut down the amount of contrails. And that's blocked the reflection of the sun that would ordinarily occur. And actually, the Earth warmed up a little bit because of that. So he studies that. So, so I mean, we should fly more planes, not fly less. More planes, burn more. <laughs> <laughs> well, other people have said we should put up a ton of you know sulfur dioxide. Right. Like, so, so there are all sorts of and cloud seeding. It's an incredibly complicated field. I don't feel personally well versed. It's just like if you asked one of them, a geophysicist, you know, what do you think about you know the inflation theory versus cyclic chronic? I wouldn't say I, I would say in all humility that it's such a complex subject that you know to study one aspect of it is enough. There, there, the forces of geophysics that are at work, and it's incredibly complex. And I say that with utmost respect. I mean, to read these journals, and I don't have time for it. You know, one universe is enough for me. And the other, the other main overlap is to simplify it. Uh, if the universe, if you're studying the way the universe happened, mm -hmm. then human beings happened too. Correct. So we're part of the arc of whatever this thing. There's the Big Bang and all, the, and somehow, some there's some anti-entropic quest happening here. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is human aware. We're watching. We're mm -hmm. seeing this thing. We're thinking about this thing. I don't know if anybody else is, but we certainly, we humans are. Mm -hmm. Do you, have you thought about how did this, how do we go from uh, 
quarks or this background <laughs> radiation explosion stuff right. to this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think these are the two intertwined questions, the origin of the universe and the origin of life. And the origin of life, you know, in some ways could be even more complex because it's dealing with wet, squishy things and computers that operate in water under, you know, at room temperature. Um, you know, I think about that a lot. And, you know, I even think about, well, how probable or improbable is it? You know, what if I said to you, you know, one thing I've been asking people lately is, you know, are the existence of whales required for extraterrestrial intelligence to exist? In other words, we only got to the point where we could make this radio transmitter, this this podcasting equipment. We only did that on the basis of fossil fuels, right? And and the midwife between fossil fuels and and you know the technology that we have today and the early part, you know, pre-industrial age, you know, it was like whale blubber. Mm-hmm. And then before that, I mean, we had dinosaurs and we had pre-body, you know, plant life. I mean, is it a prerequisite for us to get to the podcasting level where we could send out our signal across the universe, literally, um, is it a prerequisite that we had dinosaurs? I mean, and you start thinking about the improbable odds, you know, that any other planet could possibly have the same trajectory through space and through time that our planet did to get us to this very moment now. And the odds are just so astronomical. I mean, that's where the word astronomical comes from. And to be able to study that and then think, well, there's also this mystery of where did the universe come from and how did it evolve? And could it be different by even the slightest, you know, quark, as you said, and us still be here? And I think these are just the two most fascinating mysteries that a person could possibly study. But do you have an inkling on how matter led to awareness? We understand the big picture. We understand the big picture really well. Like I said, we understand the big picture. We understand, you know, everything that happened in the universe on a physics in physics terminology. We don't understand, you know, <clears throat> just as we don't understand what this air molecule right here in this room is going to do next, you know, because it's just too computationally difficult right. to to figure out. We understand the big picture, though. We understand the pressure, temperature, density of the atmosphere right. in this room. Uh, but just, we don't understand. But that doesn't get us to how consciousness emerges from biology. Oh, yeah. or so bi- consciousness, I found, is is almost. I, I participated in a in a um, in a conversation in a lecture series put on by Stuart Hameroff of uh, University of Arizona, who studies uh, consciousness, and he's an anesthesiologist. So he he believes, uh, along with Sir Roger Penrose, that there are certain uh, microtubule fluctuations that uh, adapt quantum right. resonance. And, and actually, I don't understand that. But uh, I did come away, <laughs> you know, with kind of the Sam Harris perspective. That really nobody has a functional working definition of consciousness. Uh, it's it's just so hard. And and some people at the conference, you know, I think the Dennett kind of school is, you know, even even this bottle cap can have consciousness. You know, anything can have consciousness. And uh, and there are some that say that no, only these you know certain kinds of microtubule fluctuations can store that what we see. Or consciousness is an illusion. It's a product of computation. Some right. say we're a simulation. Oh, create, I hate yeah. them. Right. I know. It's 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 kind of getting away into into real future shock there. Uh, which I know you dislike. So I would say no. I mean, we understand the big picture, and the big picture is enough to keep me gainfully employed for decades. And then when you're just playing with your kids or whatever, is that stuff in the back of your mind, or are you going to a totally different space? Yeah, I mean, my kids go to, you know, like a parochial school, like a Jewish parochial school. And, you know, a lot of their classmates, you know, that are, you know, sons and daughters of rabbis or whatever, you know, they'll say things like, well, you know, they'll see a rainbow. And they'll say, oh, God created that rainbow. I say, no. I think it's a terrible thing to, to teach the kids, actually. <laughs> I think you should say, no, the rainbow's caused by the refraction of water molecules, you know, and light interacting with it. And light's composed of many different colors. And when you pass that through an index, okay, so fine. So where do the water molecules? Well, the water's composed of hydrogen yeah. and oxygen and the arrangements of, uh, of them inside and certain structure and surface. Where did that come from? So you can keep going. And you should keep going. And I tell my kids to keep going. And yeah, they understand it a little bit. Uh, they'll parrot it back, at least, which is the goal of any parent, right? Yeah. You want them to browbeat it <laughs> into the state where they repeat exactly as you've taught them. But I think it's okay to stop at the end and say, we don't know. We just don't know. We have no idea what happens to that very first quantum of energy uh, yet. We may someday have evidence that there was another universe that predated ours and how that would interact. I think these are the things, you know, I also can have a catch, you know, f- toss a Frisbee around with my kids. I don't want you to think this is all I do, but I think it's important. And the last message I want people to take away is that if you're religious, we've talked about this today, you know, you should at least be open and you should have a free conversation. You should be the militant atheist. You're an idiot. You're a jerk. You know, kind of the way that you know, uh, that, that some militant atheists that are self-proclaimed treat believers. But also conversely and correspondingly, 
the religious should not be ignorant of science. The, my, my least favorite term when I meet someone who's a religious, Christian, Muslim, or, or, or Jew, say, oh, I'm not a science person. No, you should be a science person. You're the, you're the person who should appreciate science the most because science is kind of like God's cliff notes. It's the way that, you know, if you're a believer, that, that he has given us a simplified breakdown of how the universe is put together in a physical sense. And if you can get a glimpse through that crack, then maybe you can appreciate it more. So I say it's sciences are like providing, scientists can provide vitamins of faith if you're faithful, and the dialogue should go two ways. You're not free from it just because you claim to believe in God. You're not free from the obligation and desist from the obligation of learning about science. You should learn it most of all. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Brian Keating, astrophysicist and author of Losing the Nobel Prize. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes, we put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This show is, after all, produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.